The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Our teaching text is from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good to be with you. How we doing? Apparently it is a little rainy. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited for this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go to Isaiah 53, what we just read. We're also going to hit on Matthew 1 as we get there. Got a good bit of work to do before we get there. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started this morning. Father God, we thank you um, for your love, for your kindness and grace to us uh, in this season of Advent that uh, we await uh, the coming of your Son. We thank you, Jesus, that you did come and that you came in weakness. You laid down your life and were raised in power for us that we could be united to one another and to you. Lord, let your spirit weigh on us this morning as we talk about your sacrifice, Jesus. We pray in your precious and holy name. Amen. If you uh, have missed the last couple weeks of our Advent series, we're wrapping up this week where we've been exploring these three gifts that the wise men or magi give to the baby Jesus in Matthew 2, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
As a recap, the Magi, they follow this star that's an indicator that the Messiah, or as they say, the King of the Jews, has been born. They follow it all the way to this little town called Bethlehem, where they find Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, and they give them these three gifts. Now, as we've talked about each week, these gifts are not mere trinkets. They're prophetic gifts. They point towards something and back towards something. And as we said each week, this isn't something that we made up as a church. We weren't like, we want to do a series about gifts. So let's talk about, I guess these are the gifts in the Bible we can talk about. That's not it. This has been a part of church teaching for thousands of years. I love this quote that Tim used last week from an early church father named Origen. He said, they came accordingly to Judea, bringing gifts, gold as to a king, Myrrh as to one who was mortal, and incense as to a god. They brought these offerings after they had learned the place of his birth. As we said, gold. Jesus, this baby lying in the manger, is king. Not just a king, the king, the king of kings, who will defeat our enemy, restore all things, and shepherd his people. Last week we talked about frankincense. That Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. This is God put on flesh, lowering himself, yet is still perfect and holy. And this week we're going to talk about the gift of myrrh. Now myrrh is pretty similar to frankincense for a couple of reasons. Just like frankincense, it's a resin extract from a specific type of tree. A tree called the Comifor tree that's in the Arabian Peninsula. Just like frankincense, it was fragrant. And at the time it was very expensive and rare, and it also played a role in Old Testament worship. So myrrh had two predominant purposes. First, it was used as an oil of consecration. So the priests uh, in the Old Testament would take myrrh and put it in their oil, and they would anoint themselves before they would go do their priestly sacrificial responsibilities. It symbolized that they're holy, that they're set apart for God. So right there, we see some obvious nods that Jesus is our great high priest. That's something that we see all throughout the book of Hebrews, if you've ever read it. But there's a second, more prominent use of myrrh that I want to hone in on this morning. Myrrh was used for burials. It was used for funerals. So similar to today, even then, there were extensive practices around burials and funerals and how you would treat a body. So in preparation for a burial, a body would be stripped of its clothes, cleaned thoroughly, and then anointed with oils and spices. And myrrh was a key part of the process. Then the body would be wrapped in a shroud, a face covering was put on, and the hands and feet would be tied with different strips of cloth. We see this in uh, the gospel account of Jesus' death from John 19. Let me read it to you real fast. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. If you remember Nicodemus coming to Jesus in John chapter 3, he's a Pharisee. He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. They used a lot of it. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So what does myrrh point us to? Very simply, myrrh points us towards a funeral. That points us to a burial. Or even more simply, it points us towards death. Which, let's just pause right there. 
Remember, this is being brought to a baby. This is a weird gift. This was not on the registry. This is like, what are, what are we doing here? One of these things is not like the other. Uh, but even more strangely, it being brought to this baby, right? Like, think about the trajectory of these gifts. We've got gold. This baby's the king. He's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. His kingdom will have no end. Frankincense. This is Emmanuel. God with us. The king is here. And he's God. And Myrrh, he's going to die. He's sort of a goner. That is not, that does not translate. How does God die? How is this king who's supposed to have an unending kingdom supposed to die? That doesn't make sense. Now we know that Matthew is doing something intentional here. He's trying to draw connections. And the mention of these gifts is supposed to point us towards something, as well as point us back towards something. But I would argue that Matthew had his work cut out for him on this one. This one does not make sense. It's some subverted expectations big time. God the King come to die. We also have our work cut out for us. However, it is interesting. Matthew has actually already kind of set some things up. He's laid some groundwork for what he's trying to point to by the time he even mentions these gifts. So look back at Matthew uh, chapter 1. We talked about this, uh, these verses last week. So an angel has appeared to Joseph. Joseph was planning to dismiss Mary. Uh, he finds out that she's pregnant, and they were to be married. And he says, I'm going to divorce, divorce her. And this angel shows up and says, don't do that. And this is what he goes on to say. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Whenever you're reading a verse that sort of goes like this, where the author says their name is going to be filled with like X, Y, Z, and then explanation, it's almost always the author saying, this is what that name literally means. So uh, in Hebrew, Jesus' name was less like Jesus and more like Joshua, the modern. So in the Hebrew, his name was literally Yeshua. But what that name literally meant was God saves. So we know in these verses that the angel goes on to say, and Matthew reminds us that this is Emmanuel, God with us. So he's saying this is God with us who has come to save the people from their sins, which would have started to ring some bells for Matthew's readers. Because all throughout the Old Testament, we get a clear picture that this is what the world needs. It needs a savior. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, where things go wrong, and start to trace it forward, you see the world is broken. God's people are broken. And people individually are broken. The reason is simple. Sin has fractured the world. But God has promised to do something about it from Genesis 3 onward, to send a savior who's going to restore all things, who's going to rule and redeem and so if you read the Old Testament, you start to see the story unfold. You see, God's people get established, and he starts sending these prophets. Who, they address the immediate, right? They say, hey, you got some stuff coming. 
we got problems here. We got consequences for sin. But they also start to point towards the Savior and pointing towards hope. And nowhere do we get a clearer picture of that hope and who this Savior is supposed to be than in the book of Isaiah. So last week, Tim did a lot of work setting up the book of Isaiah. I just want to address one thing, the themes. So for the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you pretty much get one thing, judgment. It's about to go down. Isaiah is dressing God's people. He's saying there are consequences for your sin. We're getting invaded. There's going to be an exile. It is not going to go well for us. And then you get to chapter 40, and it all changes. Yet throughout those first 39 chapters, there's glimmers of hope. We talked about it last week. Emmanuel looks to the birth of the virgin. And then chapter 40 comes. We start to get a vision of what that redemption and restoration is going to look like. And what it's going to look like is going back to the beginning. Israel's God's people being what they were supposed to be. Because God gave them a mission. You go all the way back to Abraham, right? That the world would be blessed through these people. That the rest of the world would know who God is because of God's people. And Isaiah is saying that is finally going to happen. God's people will finally be this. But even as he's addressing this, his focus shifts off of God's people and onto a person. A person that Isaiah calls the servant, who's God's chosen one that will fulfill all of the things that God's people failed to do. That he will be empowered by God, that he will establish God's kingdom, that he will restore it, he will be a light to the nations. But then we get to Isaiah 53, and we see what it's going to take for him to do it. And it's shocking. Let's read it together. Isaiah 53, let's see what the servant has to do. Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I know many of us have probably read this before, but I don't want you to miss how shocking this setup is. This is, this is describing the same Savior that's being called the King, the, the Lord, the Wonderful Counselor. He's going to be hated. He's going to be rejected. He will have no form or majesty that anyone would be physically drawn to. He'll be despised, a man of sorrows, not esteemed. This is the person that's supposed to restore Israel, restore God's people. How? Keep going. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. So the servant that God has raised up is going to be crushed, pained, but with a purpose. He's wounded for the people, for their transgressions, for their iniquity, for their sins. He takes their punishment. It says he's chastised to bring peace, struck down to bring healing, that he will be punished for sins to, that he did not commit, and it will be so brutal that it will ultimately end in his death. He will die with the wicked. He will be counted with them and laid in a rich man's tomb. He will die and be buried. So somehow, in order to be this savior, he has to suffer and die. We're going to see why. Let's keep going and finish it out. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes the intercession for the transgressors. So, in some of this long chapter, the servant, God's chosen one, will suffer will be rejected, hated, will be wounded for the people. It says, like sheep, we have gone astray. The people he's talking about and us have gone astray, but somehow this servant is going to become like a sheep, led to the slaughter, killed because of the transgressions and iniquity of the people. He will die and be buried. And it says, why? Because of the will of God. Because God knew we needed a Savior. It says he became a guilt offering. He bears our sin on our behalf, making transgressors right with God. This promised servant of God who will save the people from their sins will accomplish this mission through a horrific, sacrificial death. And this is what the gift of myrrh is pointing us towards. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. That is who Jesus is, our guilt offering. That's what Jesus ultimately came to do. He came to die. Jesus, the baby boy, came to die. Now, I know this is a heavy Advent message. And I know you've heard, we've all heard this, if you've been in church at any amount of time, a thousand times. Yet, I think I'd be remiss not to tell you why this is the best news the world has ever heard, even if it's news you've heard a million times. 
Because the same Savior that Isaiah and Matthew said the people they're talking to needed, we need him too. The problem Isaiah tells his ancient readers of is the same problem we have today. Guilt before God. Sin. All of us have gone astray. That's not something we're not dealing with. We've all, like sheep, wandered away. We've each chosen our own ways before God. I don't know if you've ever, you know, the, the language of sheep, the imagery of weeping sheep, God being the shepherd, it's kind of scattered throughout the Bible. It sort of feels good a lot of the time. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. You know, it's not a gold star. It's kind of an insult in some ways. Because sheep are really dumb. They're very unintelligent creatures. I was listening to a podcast recently, and they were talking about a few years ago in Turkey. 1,500 sheep just wandered off a cliff. And they asked the shepherds, Why? how does that happen? And they were like, well, the first one went over. And then 1,499 were like, okay. <laughs> and they were like, 500 sheep died. You may ask, why not 1,500? Well, supposedly, there were so many sheep that it just became a massive mattress of animals. And the other 1,000 just were fine. <laughs> sheep are not smart. As funny as that is, uh, that is what Isaiah is saying about us. We have foolishly wandered away from God. We cannot make good decisions. It's not in our nature. We're arrogant and absent-minded when we choose our own ways over God. The Bible is clear. We're not good people. People are not born good or in neutral. We cannot try our best and say that we're good over all people. The scriptures do not say that. They say we are sinful, born into it, and choosing it every day. And although we may feel like, well, it's, I'm, it's fine. Like we get used to it in ourselves. It's actually an atrocity to God. This is how the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon said it. He says, the fact is that man is a reeking mass of corruption. He said, not me. I agree. His whole soul is by nature so debased and so depraved that no description which can be given of him, even by inspired tongues, can fully tell how base and vile a thing he is. And just like the sheep, we cannot save ourselves. We have wandered. We do not know the way back. We cannot fix the problem on our own. We cannot clear our own record. Now, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, God tried and God gave the people a temporary way to deal with their guilt and sin, the sacrificial system. We've talked about it many times. Priests would go purify themselves and offer animal sacrifices on behalf of the people. They would do it day in, day out to make themselves and God's people right with God. Because in order to be right with God, a sacrifice had to be made. That's how Hebrews 9.22 puts it. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Do you see that? I think a lot of times we think, if I do this, that, and the other, I can be forgiven. There's a system in place. There always has been. 
Someone has to die. Something has to die. There has to be bloodshed to be forgiven. Blood must be shed. The sacrificial system, it checked the box. But the problem is that it wasn't enough. Because the people remained unchanged. They and we needed a better sacrifice. The true sacrifice without spot or blemish that the whole sacrificial system was pointing to. Jesus the perfect lamb crushed, suffering, punished in our place. But even more than that, he doesn't just take our punishment. He gives us his record. He gives us his perfect, sinless record of a life devoted and consecrated to God. And he gives that to all those who believe. This is what theologians call the great exchange, our sin for Christ's righteousness. The writer of Hebrews, just a few verses before I, what I just read, sum it up perfectly. In verse 12, it says, He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He takes care of our sin forever for those who believe. Wiped out, not by the means of animals, but by his precious, perfect blood. And see what it says there. His sacrifice can actually change you because he did not stay dead. He rose by the power of the Spirit, and that same Spirit lives in all who believe, changing us from the inside out. And that is what Advent is about. God coming to earth to save his people eternally, transforming us now, establishing his kingdom through the death of the Son. That's what Murr points us to points us back to Isaiah 53 and the promise Savior coming would suffer and points us forward to the cross where his mission would be accomplished. So that, that's my Christmas sermon for us. I'd love to just try to get it on the ground for us as we, uh, as we close. So I, I don't know where, where you've been at this month as we go through Advent or eight days from Christmas. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know about you. I know for me, uh, this season gets very crowded, very fast, and I'm and I'm thinking about things like family, all the travel that we're going to have to do. How there's going to be crazy days ahead. I'm not going to have a lot of time to rest. Thinking about gifts and really the bill. It's on my credit card. Anxiety comes with that. Maybe uh, pain, hurt, relational. Sadness, people missing, grief. Maybe it's not the negative. Maybe it's the positive stuff. The music, the trees, the decoration, the weather. You like the cold. I don't know. I think when it gets dark, I get dark inside. <laughs> but maybe you like the good stuff, and that can even in itself be a distraction. Maybe you're thinking about the end of the year, like 2024 is here which can be like, ah, or it can be like, yeah. 
I'm gonna go through that. I don't know. Again, not me. Isn't it hard to be rooted in what this is supposed to be about? Waiting for the coming Savior, reflecting on it. You feel like this month has sort of passed by. This happens to me all the time. And it's December 26th, and I'm like, did I think about God? Like, I did the Advent Depot for 10 minutes every morning. What? What, what, what happened, though? So I don't, I don't know where you're at. I know it gets crowded, though. So in the midst of that, in the coming days, I just want to push you. Rest in the reality of the good news of Advent. You need a savior. You do. You needed him before you believed, and you need him now. That's what Advent is about. God has come to meet your greatest need. Let this be Advent. Let this Advent be good news to your soul. You need him. You need him now. You cannot be too busy for the Savior. I do not care what your schedule looks like. How busy you are, how distracted you are. You cannot be too distracted to not need a pardon from God. You have no righteousness of your own. And Advent is good news that the boy came to die to give you his righteousness. We have good news to celebrate because Jesus came to the world to say that the king is king. And he is our king. He came as God with us now and forever. And he came to die but not just to die, to rise, to establish his kingdom forever, to come and dwell in his people forever. Over the manger that night, the cross and empty tomb loomed large. That's what was ahead. Jesus came in weakness, he died in weakness, and was raised in power as the mighty servant of God who would save the people from their sins. And that is why Christmas and heaven are good news, because of the cross the resurrection of our Savior. That's what these three gifts are ultimately all about. The sacrificial death of God, the King, who's come to be with us. As the only gift that you need, that we need, this Christmas season. And let me pray for us. Father God, we, I confess for myself, and minimize my sin. I'm too busy and distracted to think about it. I acknowledge it, but not in such a way that I would say I'm desperately in need of Savior. Lord, we, we need you, we needed you, and you came. Jesus, we thank you for your life lived perfectly, laid down on our behalf. Lord, you were the suffering servant. You were rejected and despised. You were oppressed, beaten, and killed for us on our behalf, Lord. It's such good news because we do not come to you on our own works and merit. Lord, as Tim said, this is the ultimate marker of love. That's why you came, Jesus. Love of God for his glory and love of the sinner. 
pray that God would sit with us in the coming days, that we would rest in your kindness and grace for us. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.